Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Entering the home stretch, part five finds us doing a deep dive on the former New Orleans district attorney and judge Jim Garrison, whom Kevin Costner portrayed in the film JFK, a narrative hagiography in which the figure of Garrison stands for all that is right and true in the world against the nefarious and hard-to-pin-down forces of conspiracy. They're hard to pin down, of course, because Garrison was a bullshit artist, probably a paranoid, and possibly something much worse, as you'll shortly hear. Our last stop before dealing with the Garrison trial is the idea that whatever mechanism he used to attain his Macbethian aims, the true mastermind behind the Kennedy assassination was, in fact, his successor, Lyndon Baines Johnson. There are plenty of sources to choose from when it comes to this general theory, but the most over-the-top histrionic version has got to be LBJ, the mastermind of the JFK assassination, by Philip Nelson. By this point, you'll be familiar with the construction of this set of conspiracist allegations. Let me guess. There are apocryphal witnesses who kind of sort of support the allegations. Johnson was a real asshole, and come on, he benefited so much from the assassination, he simply had to be involved. Yeah, that's the gist of it. Or as Nelson puts it, A. Who had the most to gain? B. Who had the least to lose? C. Who had the means to do it? D. Who had the apparatus in place to subsequently cover it up? E. Who had the kind of narcissistic, sociopathic personality capable of rationalizing the action as acceptable and necessary, together with the resolve and determination to see it through? You'll note that these are, as near as damn it, the same criteria that Moldea, albeit more conservatively, applies to the Mafia explanation. But here, just as there, it's basically all hand-waving. Even if you grant that Johnson had the motive, the evidence of culpability remains thin on the ground. Nelson heavily quotes from Robert Caro's ongoing multi-volume biography of Johnson to paint a selective portrait of an almost comically Iago-esque court schemer and murderous nightmare of power-hungry avarice, which, to be fair, does accurately describe some aspects of Johnson's character. But it's hardly a full description of the man who also risked all of his lifetime of political capital to pass historic and revolutionary civil rights and anti-poverty legislation. But in Nelson's imagination, there is no limit to the machinations that his LBJ is capable of. For example, Indeed, it can now be posited that John F. Kennedy's fatal mistake occurred over three years before he died. His agonizing and reluctant decision to accede to the threat of blackmail by Lyndon Johnson and J. Edgar Hoover on July 14, 1960, at the Democratic Convention, allowed Johnson to be named as the vice president nominee. This action put Johnson next in line to succeed JFK, an essential step in his plot to become President of the United States. See? When you don't have to provide evidence of your assertions, you can make your villain into some sort of superhuman Lex Luthor-esque mastermind, maneuvering into the vice presidency knowing that a short three years later, 
he will cause an unreliable dipshit, then in the process of defecting to the Soviet Union, to shoot his new running mate from the corner of a building that said dipshit won't get access to until a few weeks before the fatal moment. It's almost hard to believe. We collected lots of notes from this turgid mess of a book, but we have a lot more crazy to cover, and there's not a lot more insight to be gained here. So let's move on to the greatest of all conspiracy theories, the one proffered by Jim Garrison, reiterated by Oliver Stone, and recurring in the fever dreams of countless conspiracy theorists since. We're not sure what to call this, given how weird and amorphous it is, but let's go with the CIA, FBI, Secret Service, plus whoever the fuck else you want to throw in the mix. Conspiracy. Since we're now fully moving into the realm of the real historical former New Orleans DA Jim Garrison, as opposed to the Kevin Costner, Mr. DA Goes to Washington version from the Stone film, it's worth noting that Garrison never really felt the need to tie himself down to one particular perspective on who, exactly, was responsible for the assassination. As Peter Knight notes, all of the details were subject to constant amendment based on Garrison's latest theories, as well as the composition of his audience. He developed a detailed assassination scenario involving as many as 16 shooters, with a fatal headshot having been fired from a storm drain just in front of the presidential limousine. The specifics of Garrison's case are less important than the general effect they had on reorientating conspiracy-minded assassination studies. First, by claiming a link between Kennedy's death and the escalation of the war in Vietnam, it tended to infuse assassination studies with a romantic nostalgia for Kennedy. Second, it helped make a conspiracist stance on the assassination an indispensable part of anti-war activist credentials. It's this connection with the anti-Vietnam movement that attracted Stone to Garrison's case as the subject for his film. Knight draws out this connection, noting that the movie, all of Stone's claims that it's designed to present multiple perspectives aside, actually makes a stridently argumentative case for a specific point of view. In a key moment in the film, Costner's Garrison travels to Washington, D.C. to meet with a mysterious figure known only as X, played with appropriate mystery by Donald Sutherland. X then spins a tale that uses a very selective version of Kennedy's political trajectory to argue that Kennedy's fate was sealed by his determination to bring an end to the Vietnam War and, while he was at it, the Cold War. The model for X is one Fletcher Prouty, formerly the real-life chief liaison officer between the CIA and the military, who had totally convinced Stone of the veracity of this theory. We should also mention that, in addition to his service to his country, he also had links to the Liberty Lobby, which Knight describes as a far-right conspiracist group that inserts the Kennedy assassination into a wider story about the coming New World Order. So, nutjob. But the most interesting part of this weird pause in the film's action is that X insists to Costner Garrison that he should focus his attention on why the assassination was perpetrated and not how it happened. Noting the how is just scenery for the suckers. But the majority of the film is absolutely obsessed with the how aspects. See, for example, the closing argument segment we covered earlier. This speech by the fictional X is the only way Stone can even pretend to attach his preferred motive to the assassination trivia and minutia that take up the rest of the movie. We've explored from several angles the version of Jim Garrison and his unprecedented prosecution of local businessman Clay Shaw in the late 1960s that moviegoers saw almost three decades ago. Now we'll see what really happened in the city that care forgot when Jim Garrison decided he would be the man to solve the JFK assassination. 
We're sure many of you have experienced the unique weirdness of New Orleans firsthand, whether at a debauched college visit to the French Quarter, a drunken bachelor party, a boozy afternoon at Jazz Fest. Basically, what we're saying is, if you visited, you were probably drunk. But given that New Orleans is our ancestral homeland, we're here to tell you that no matter what perspectives you developed through beer-colored glasses, it's one of the most wonderful and unique cities on Earth, a jewel of culture, food, and music, where life moves at a completely different rhythm. It's also super-duper weird. It's impossible to convey just how weird it is in this context. That could easily be its own podcast series. But here are a few data points. One. It's the major city of the only state in the Union that doesn't function under a legal system derived from English common law. It's under Napoleonic Code. If you want to practice law in New Orleans, you have to take a completely different bar exam. Also, the counties are called parishes. Two. In 1992, the gubernatorial election was contested by a former governor, Edwin Edwards, whose previous terms of office had been marred by a variety of corruption scandals, and David Duke, a former Grand Wizard of the KKK. The anti-Duke forces printed up bumper stickers that read, Vote for the Crook, It's Important. Aside on Edwards, he was eventually convicted for a nearly operatic series of bribery scandals arising from his fourth term as governor, though perhaps his finest moment was when he assured journalists before his 9083 comeback win for a third term that, quote, the only way I can lose this election is if I'm caught in bed with a dead girl or a live boy. If that's not enough to convince you that Louisiana, and especially New Orleans, is a weird place, Try this one on for size. One of the two most important parades on Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras Day, and by far the most fun, is Zulu. A parade organized and run entirely by African-American crew members, established in 1916, it's one of the most straightforward and joyous celebrations of the centrality of African-Americans to the unique culture of New Orleans. Also, everyone in the crew, whether black or white, is required to wear blackface makeup during the parade. Wait, what? Yeah. And their costumes often involve grass skirts. I'm not comfortable with this. And they throw plastic spears and hand-decorated coconuts. Jesus, is this a parade or a hate crime? I know this sounds bizarre if you've never seen it, but trust us. If you ever get to go to Zulu, you'll never see a bigger, more positive affirmation of African-American culture. But yeah, it's a weird thing that can only exist in this weird city. We're talking about a place where it is literally true that depending on the part of town and the time of year, you might easily see a parade of parasol-waving revelers dancing in front of a brass band pass down your street. And if you see it, you're welcome to join in. It's pretty much the best. But it's also a place that has a unique tolerance for wildly entertaining, larger-than-life, frequently corrupt public figures, which is why the Jim Garrison phenomenon could maybe only have happened in that city. The Clayshaw trial is insanely complicated, especially because, in spite of Garrison and Stone's insistence to the contrary, it has so little to do with the Kennedy assassination. But we're going to try to lay out what happened as succinctly as possible, depending for our factual review almost entirely on Patricia Lambert's eminently readable, hugely informative book on the trial, False Witness. So... How did all this bullshit start? Probably the very first domino to fall was simply when the district attorney of New Orleans Parish, Jim Garrison, learned that the accused assassin of President Kennedy was a New Orleans native. But this story centers around the actions of two men in the wake of the shooting, Jack Martin, a local private investigator, and Dean Andrews, a bottom-scraping attorney. 
we'll take them one at a time. For those of you who've seen this movie, we're going to identify each of the main players in this farce with the actor who played him in JFK. No, we're not using archaic gender pronouns. It's all dudes. Jack Martin. The incomparable Jack Lemmon. Was a marginally employed investigator who frequently worked for Guy Bannister. Ed Asner. Who in turn was the former Chicago chief of the FBI, former assistant superintendent of the New Orleans police, a private investigator, and a full-time anti-communist cold warrior. You may recall that Lemon got the shit pistol whipped out of him by Asner at the beginning of the film, the night of the assassination. Stone wants you to think this is because Lemon slash Martin was too close to the truth about the conspiracy, but Lambert convincingly suggests that the conflict was over long-distance phone calls that Martin had been charging to Bannister's office. Martin went to the hospital, gave a statement about the incident to the cops, and slept it off at home. The next day, Martin had a conversation over drinks with a friend that ended up focusing on a local named David Ferry. A weirdly eyebrow-free Joe Pesci. Martin was no fan of Ferry, and somehow he got it into his head that Ferry, who suffered from alopecia, which caused the hair all over his body to fall out, had a rifle that kinda looked like the one that the news anchors were saying had been used to kill Kennedy. Considering that Ferry's assassination involvement would become a cornerstone of the eventual case, it bears repeating here that this is literally the entire basis of his involvement. A story concocted by one drunk. Martin, while continuing to drink, started calling around the city and spreading his baseless allegations about Ferry, who may have been the one who dimed out Martin's illicit, long-distance charges to Bannister in the first place. He learned that Ferry had been in the Civil Air Patrol, a civilian adjunct of the Air Force, a group that Oswald had also briefly joined during high school. This fact was seamlessly rolled into Martin's ever-growing tale, which he repeated in one phone call after another, spreading the word over the weekend about Ferry's involvement in the assassination. According to Martin, Ferry had taught Oswald to fire foreign weapons. He had flown Oswald to Dallas. He was communicating with Oswald and had been with Oswald in Dallas within the last 10 days. Ferry had said Kennedy should be killed. He had outlight and plans to accomplish it, and he'd given Oswald a post-hypnotic suggestion to do the deed. Martin also claimed that when Oswald was arrested, he had in his possession Ferry's library card, and he told virtually everyone he spoke to that Ferry was homosexual. Except for the latter, all of Martin's information was fabricated. As a result, suddenly the local press was at Ferry's door. Imagine being this poor guy, gay, deeply religious, supremely conflicted, hairless, and all of a sudden, for no reason you can understand, caught up in rumors about the recent assassination of the president. Garrison, the glory-hungry district attorney, eventually got wind of these rumors and sent the cops after Ferry. They found no evidence, and eventually Martin recanted his nonsense, first to the FBI and then to the Secret Service. He admitted suffering from telephonitis when he drank. It's often reported that Ferry was linked to the assassination that weekend by various reports, the sheer number lending credibility to the charges. What few seem to realize is that all of them originated from a single source, Jack Martin's red-hot telephone line. So even if this ended here, it would be a weirdly only-in-NOLA story with improbable action, unbelievable characters, etc. But there's another piece of this pre-Garrison puzzle that was developing simultaneously, The Wild Tales of Dean Andrews, Esquire. In the movie, Andrews was played by John Candy, and if you thought the late comedic genius's portrayal of the lawyer was over the top with its hepcat lingo, If I answer that question you keep asking, if I give you the name of the big enchilada you know, then it's Bon Boyardino. I mean like permanent. I mean like a bullet in my head, you dig? You're a mouse fighting a gorilla. Kennedy's as dead as that crab meat. 
you've clearly never read any direct quotes from Dean Andrews. He was, as depicted in the movie, a big guy who was an acquaintance of Garrison's and a small-time lawyer with a love for attention and, like Martin, a severe case of telephonitis. As it happens, he was in the hospital over the assassination weekend under the influence of drugs he was taking to treat pneumonia. During this period, he had a series of phone calls in which he went from wishing he was representing Oswald, as that would make him a famous lawyer, to telling his secretary that he was representing Oswald. Said secretary, shocked and dismayed as may be expected, asked Andrews who had hired him. He responded with a single name off the top of his head, Bertrand. Later, while he was jawing with another lawyer to gauge his interest in being part of Andrews' entirely imaginary Oswald defense team, his supposed client was gunned down on live TV. This was, as Lambert puts it, a case of good news and bad news. The bad news was that the client was dead and Andrews had no one to defend. The good news was that the client was dead and Andrews could fabricate any story and Lee Harvey Oswald couldn't deny it. So, and please note, Andrews was still doped up and in the hospital at this point. He then called the FBI, not only claiming that this imaginary Bertrand had hired him, but that Oswald had showed up three times the previous summer asking legal advice, accompanied by five or so men Andrews only identified as homosexuals. Again, this was after Oswald's death, so who was going to contradict him? He also fatefully decided to give Bertrand the first name Clay, and a description that, except for the gay part, didn't resemble Clay Shaw at all. At this point, we need to mention the real-life figure of Clay Shaw, played by Tommy Lee Jones in the movie. The real guy was a prominent, popular, and apparently totally innocent businessman, whom Garrison would eventually peg as a central figure in a plot on the president's life, based on Dean Andrews' imagination, and apparently also on the fact that Shaw was gay and closeted. After getting an earful of Andrews' nonsense over the weekend of the assassination, the feds launched a massive 10-day manhunt for the mysterious Clay Bertrand, which unsurprisingly led nowhere since he was made up. Once out of the hospital, the potentially drugged, potentially just bullshitting Andrews claimed in subsequent interviews with authorities that he couldn't remember phoning the Phoebes or the Secret Service and that the whole thing seemed like a dream. Maneuvering skillfully to execrate himself, Andrews said that he had no memory of calling his secretary and was unable to account for the name Bertrand. Now, up to this point, essentially everyone in authority has behaved responsibly. Two fabulists, both hopped up on mind-altering substances, made wildly irresponsible phone calls over the weekend of the assassination. The responding agencies, both local and federal, investigated allegations arising from these calls and found nothing substantive. Hell, even D.A. Garrison dropped the whole thing for a while. Unfortunately, that calm wouldn't last. Over the next couple of years, Garrison and his team started pursuing a secret investigation, exploring a few topics, trying to identify the mysterious Clay Bertrand, for example but also probing the admittedly odd trip that the admittedly odd ferry took with a couple of friends on the night of the assassination. They drove, through a pouring rainstorm, to Houston, Texas. About a six-hour drive. To go ice skating. Seriously, that's apparently what they did. And yes, this is weird, but we've already stipulated that Ferry is a weird guy. That doesn't make his trip connect to the Kennedy assassination. Garrison, though, developed a theory that Ferry, a former pilot who had his own plane, was actually supposed to be the getaway flyer for Oswald to spirit him out of Dallas, and that the Houston ice rink was the command center where Ferry contacted all of the other plotters after Oswald's arrest, presumably to organize the Ruby intervention that Sunday. Garrison and co. questioned and harassed Ferry, the stress of which may have been a factor in the man's death from cerebral hemorrhage, which, though it was declared a death by natural causes by the medical examiner, Garrison's staff maintained to be a suicide. 
or potentially a murder staged to look like a suicide. Based on two different pieces of unfinished correspondence found in Ferry's apartment, neither of which appears to be suicide notes. Unless, that is, you're Jim Garrison. Ferry's death couldn't have come at a better time. The DA's investigation had basically run aground on the shoals of a total lack of evidence, declaring that Ferry was one of history's most important individuals and had long since confirmed he was involved in events culminating in the assassination of President Kennedy. Garrison embarked on the second phase of his drive to prosecute the man he had decided was, in reality, Clay Bertrand. Who was, please remember, an imaginary person dreamed up by a drug-addled lawyer. That man was Clay Shaw, a popular and well-respected pillar of the city's business community who had been instrumental in the development of the then-new trademark building downtown. His private life as a closeted gay man was well-known among his peers, but of course not spoken of, this being the 60s. You may be wondering how Garrison came to this conclusion about Shaw and Bertrand. Join the club. In fact, a reporter for Life magazine assigned to cover the case recalls the moment Garrison revealed his stunning theory of the true identity of the mystery man in his office a few days before Christmas of 66. As soon as they receded, Garrison announced that he had deduced the identity of Clay Bertrand. One, Bertrand is a homosexual. Two, Bertrand speaks Spanish. Three, his first name is Clay. Then he triumphantly flipped up a photograph that was lying face down on his desk. It was a picture of Clay Shaw. Shaw fit these criteria, therefore Shaw was Bertrand. Jesus, this guy was a DA? Yeah. Like I said, it's a very strange town. Anyway, with Ferry gone, Garrison needed some other witness to justify his baseless persecution of Clay Shaw. Enter Perry Russo. A friend of Ferry's, Russo had recently recalled to a reporter that Ferry had made some passing comment about how he was gonna get Kennedy soon, but Russo thought this talk was of a piece with how many people, especially around the South, spoke about Kennedy. He kinda sorta identified Oswald to one of Garrison's investigators as looking like Ferry's former roommate after a lot of prompting, but others have pointed out that his physical description actually fit another man, James Llewellyn, who was, you know known to be one of Ferry's former roommates. Oh, and that photo of Oswald that Russo identified was actually touched up so that it looked fatter, scruffier, and lightly bearded, so that the assassin would at least kind of resemble Russo's description. Because Garrison's team wanted to squeeze more out of Russo's story than his initial reflections provided, they repeatedly drugged and hypnotized him. We've previously discussed the problems inherent in hypnotism and other techniques for dredging up supposed repressed memories. See our QAnon Quick Hit episode for more. But Garrison had no qualms about putting Russo on the stand to connect Ferry, Oswald, and perhaps most importantly, Clay Shaw, even though Russo reportedly had grave doubts about his own semi-coerced identification of Shaw as part of Ferry's social circle. In reality, the two men didn't know each other. While he was working the Russo angle, Garrison was also leaning hard on Dean Andrews to revert to his original made-up stories of Clay Bertrand hiring him to defend Oswald. Quick pause here. If Garrison's theory was right, and Shaw was in fact masterminding the assassination from New Orleans, why would he intervene to hire a lawyer for an assassin who he would have to know was scheduled to be killed by Ruby two days later? And why didn't anyone in Garrison's office point out the obvious flaw in their otherwise airtight case? But to his frustration, Andrews refused to play ball with the Shaw-Bertrand allegations, or, in Andrews' own bizarre hepcat lingo, He wanted to shuck me like corn, pluck me like a chicken, stew me like an oyster. Andrews, amazed at the DA's sheer credulousness, wanted to see if 
Garrison would just swallow anything anyone told him that fit his theories. To that end, Andrews created a fictional Cuban guerrilla fighter named Manny Garcia Gonzalez. Shortly thereafter, Garrison announced this entirely fictitious individual as the trigger man in the assassination, accused him of selling narcotics, and told Andrews he had had this man arrested. Andrews quickly convinced Garrison that whatever poor schlub he had actually arrested was the wrong man. Or, in his own words, and I just love making Dana say this stuff, The right ha-ha, but the wrong ho-ho. Eventually, in spite of his glaring lack of evidence, Garrison arrested Shaw and charged him with conspiracy to murder JFK. During the subsequent search of Shaw's house, Garrison made sure to catalog specific items recounted by Lambert. Included were a black gown, a knit hat, a black hood and cape, a chain, and five whips. Garrison let a photographer for Life magazine shoot pictures of these, though of course they couldn't possibly have anything to do with even Garrison's highly fanciful version of the assassination. They were meant to smear Shaw as a queer, the broader public not being as understanding as the cosmopolitan French Quarter crowd Shaw normally associated with. The heady irony in all of this, as a friend later noted, was that if there was one person in New Orleans who believed in John F. Kennedy, it was Clay Shaw. Lambert notes that Garrison's investigation could perhaps only have gone forward under these conditions, no reliable witnesses, wild accusations, and national mainstream magazines like the Saturday Evening Post lambasting the investigation as having no foundation in reality, in the city of New Orleans, where, as she puts it, The two newspapers spoke in unison, where Garrison's power surpassed even the governor's, and where unethical, irrational behavior by elected officials was rooted in the region's historical DNA. There's also a great deal of evidence that Garrison's team was offering what amounted to bribes for the testimony they sought. One attorney secretly recorded Garrison's men offering his client a coveted job with an airline, the chance to be the investigation's hero, and three grand. When these men found out they had been recorded, they threatened him. I don't want to get into any shit, and before I do, I'll put a hot load of lead up your ass. The New Orleans Police Department later concluded these guys hadn't violated any rules of conduct. While the local newspapers and powers that be were turning a blind eye, NBC did an expose on Garrison called the JFK Conspiracy, the case of Jim Garrison. Many Americans doubt the findings of the Warren Commission. Only one American has had and used legal powers to investigate those findings. And that one is Jim Garrison, the District Attorney of New Orleans. His investigation has made headlines for four months. This is an examination of that investigation. In the Stone film, this is depicted as a hit piece, but in reality, it comes off as responsible investigative journalism surveying a nearly unbelievable abuse of power. Finally, Garrison brought his case in 1969, and two years to the day from his initial arrest, a jury finally returned a verdict of not guilty in about 45 minutes. In spite of the terrible way he had been treated, Shaw, who seems like a really good guy, never hated Garrison, who he spoke of as the big shambling behemoth, driven as he is by the lust for power and attention. But try as I would, I could only feel that this poor son of a bitch needs help far worse than I do. Not that the not guilty verdict even slowed Garrison down. He immediately re-indicted Shaw, this time based on an accusation that his testimony in the first trial, that he didn't know Ferry or Oswald, was perjury. Garrison lost that one too, and eventually Shaw won an injunction barring him from ever prosecuting Shaw again. Unfortunately, weakened by the stress of the experience, Shaw wasn't able to fight the cancer that ate away at him, and he died in 1974. Garrison, though he was defeated by Harry Connick Sr. in the next district attorney's race, Yes, the dad of the piano guy. 
was eventually elected to a judgeship on the Circuit Court of Appeals, which he held until his death. He died never doubting that he was in the right. What an asshole! The Garrison trial left a smoking crater in the middle of the assassination research community. Their most prominent exponent was revealed as a fraud and a zealot. The other skeptics eventually brushed themselves off, picked up the pieces, and kept pushing their theories forward, which is the situation that continues to this day. And that's weird, because everyone knows that a caller to the legendary Art Bell show solved the whole thing decades ago. And uh, that's why Kennedy had to be killed. And it's very unfortunate. That's why they even arranged have the killer uh, to be uh, elusive. In fact, it was not even uh, Oswald. Oswald is, 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 as a matter of fact, still alive and living in Australia today. The actual killer of Kennedy was Marilyn Monroe. uh, Marilyn Monroe? Yes, she was the gunner on the grassy knoll, and her death was faked in 1962 in order to train her to be an assassin. You're beginning to push the limits of my... Uh, my credibility meter here. I mean, come on. Marilyn Monroe's death was faked and she killed Kennedy? Uh, when they asked for volunteers, she volunteered, but she was already an assassin. It had nothing to do with him personally. Marilyn Monroe was an assassin? Yes. And she worked with a mob in 1962-63. And it was only later she volunteered for that assignment. But she's always the crackle. on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.